Well, morning, church. A few weeks ago, um, I mentioned that one of the teaching techniques that this book does um, in 1 Samuel, as well as just Old Testament stories, is they take an idea and then they circle back to it. They repeat it, they circle back to it. Do you remember that? Another method this book uses to drive home a point, to emphasize something, to highlight something, to underline something, um, is to contrast and compare. You with me? So the writer of Samuel often places characters side by side to make a point. He loves to put individuals next to each other so that clear issues of faith and unbelief can be contrasted. So exhibit A, good guy, faith. Exhibit B, bad guy, unbelief. Yes? Today, our two contrasting figures are King Saul and his own son, Jonathan. Two men, father and son, couldn't be further apart in terms of their relationship with God. As we look at these guys, it's my prayer that we grasp the important truth that nothing, nothing restrains the Lord from saving. Nothing can prevent the Lord from saving. There's no restraint on His power. That's what Jonathan says in verse 6, right? That's why he's crazy enough, as Dan was just highlighting earlier, to take on 20 with just two. But notice that Jonathan doesn't, in verse 6, presume on that, does he? Perhaps. Perhaps the Lord may do that. He knows this truth deep in his heart. And may God help us to share that conviction with him as we look to him in prayer and as we open up his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We ask that this would not just be ideas or religious notions about thousands of years ago, but life-changing truth. We pray that your spirit would apply that to our hearts, to our minds, to the way that we live, to the way that we love our spouses and our neighbors. Pray that it would transform the way that we think about the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we left Israel off in a pretty low spot. I mean, from a human standpoint, it was hopeless. They're outnumbered by the thousands. Their spirits are broken. And as a result, the people pulled us all, right? The men, the mighty men, they go into hiding. They hide in caves, they hide in holes, anywhere to shelter themselves from the Philistines. To make matters worse, there's only 600 guys left, 
And even those guys, they don't have swords. Only Jonathan and Saul have swords. But even if they wanted to get swords, they couldn't. Why? The Hebrew blacksmiths, all of them have been snuffed out, made redundant. Here one day, gone the next. You see, the Philistines have successfully destroyed any hopes or any possibilities or capabilities of manufacturing weapons. Now, Philistia dominates the chessboard of territory west of the Jordan. But the chess game isn't over. The king has yet to be taken. We know this king, don't we? This king's inept. This king buckles under pressure. So what hope is there? Well, not all hope is lost. Because in chapter 14, the spotlight shines brightly on his son, Jonathan. We see him perched on the edge of the rebel camp. And what is Jonathan doing? He's looking out. He sees in the distance, about a kilometer away or so, a garrison of Philistines. And this group of the enemy sits there quite comfortably, quite casually, as if this is their land. They defy God. They have no regard for the Lord whatsoever. They sharpen stolen swords, gamble for stolen clothings. They eat their pigs and they mock God and they pray to false gods. They defile the holy land, desecrate God's holy name, and spit in the face of God's people. Someone has to do something. And it's at this point that Jonathan, as he's perched and looking at the enemy, does a 180, turns around, and sees his dad, the king, sitting in a cave. Of course, his dad's the king, and his dad should be the one leading the troops forward, but his dad, unfortunately, looks more like a stray dog these days. Lost. Scared. Doesn't quite know where to turn. And at this low point, Jonathan gets an idea. He makes eye contact with his best mate, his armor bearer, and gestures away from the camp with his eyes. Come, he whispers, let's go over to the garrison of the enemy. Let's see what God can do. To which his armor bearer nods with an agreement. And off they go. Let's pick up in our text in 1 Samuel, chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14, 
verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So a couple things here. When he suggests this to his armor bearer, he's not saying, hey, why don't we, why don't we go scout things out? Let's go for a stroll. Let's go for a bushwalk over to the garrisons. No, 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 no. No, no. What is he saying? He's saying, I want to strike a blow into the heart of enemy camp, of enemy territory, which is the, the, the garrison. That's the central part of the Philistine troops. You know, it's interesting is he didn't flag that to his dad, that idea. Did you catch that? His dad's unaware. Uh, perhaps, perhaps he thought Saul would forbid such an adventure. We, we know Saul's been quite fearful and tepid, hasn't he? Maybe Saul would be jealous. Oh, Jonathan, you kind of get the glory for yourself. We're not sure why he failed to mention it to him. Whatever the case, as Jonathan heads off into the action, Saul sits there on his bum. He's not alone, though, is he? The author mentions a few notorious characters who hang back with him. Um, come to the next few verses with me. See if you can recognize some of these names. They might ring a bell for you. Notice verse Two, Saul was staying in the, cave, in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's, ooh, that's the name, that sound, ding, 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 Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Uh, if you've been following along with this action-packed adventure, you'll immediately recognize some of these notorious companions of Saul. Remember the day Ichabod was born? Remember that? Brings you back to the dark days when the Ark of God was captured and Ichabod, glory departed, which is his name. You might have also heard Eli in that list if you're there. And you're aware that Eli was the priest of Israel, but that was taken away from him and his family. So here's a band of rejects in this cave. There's a rejected priestly family, and there's a rejected kingly family. And this motley crew are all together hiding from the enemy. It's worth saying in passing that like attracts like. Birds of a feather often flock together. The folks that you draw around you, the people that I draw around me, say something about us. If you draw around you a bunch of discontented, critical, and fearful people, then you become like those people. Anyway, don't miss the end of verse 3. None of them, notice, sees Jonathan and his armor bearer leave. But soon, everyone will know why they've gone. At this point in the story, the camera shifts its focus upon these two fellas, Jonathan and his armor bearer. As these two comrades head north, they quickly encounter their first obstacle. 
the spot they're headed to is flanked by two steep cliffs. In fact, this spot is so sketchy, the locals know about it, they even have a nickname for it. Bozes, which means slippery. Senna, which means thorny. Not exactly the place for a lovely bushwalk, is it? Especially when you're trying to advance against the enemy with weapons in your hands. It's the last route anyone in their right minds would take. But even with the skillful rock climbing involved and the seemingly impossible battle ahead, what do they do? They move forward in verse 4. They move forward. Nothing restrains the Lord from saving. Look at verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes, the name of the other, Sinah. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. So it's a bit of a challenge, right? And what does Jonathan say? Oh, look, given the obstacles here, I just think it's probably, it's probably not in our cards. We should probably head back to Dad in the cave. No, no, that's not what happens. They decide to push forward, and after they scale down Senna, they get to the bottom of the wadi floor, clap the dust from their hands, and Jonathan looks up at Bozes. And then the statement he makes in verse 6 is key. Remember that, kids? Verse 6. What he's about to say, friends, what Jonathan's about to say should be placed on a billboard. Its truth should sink deep down into our hearts. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Amen. Against all odds, he confesses confidence in God's power to save. Notice he evaluates his situation on, through a theological lens. Kind of sounds like David, doesn't it? I don't want to spoil it, but when we get to David and Goliath, what is he most concerned about? He hears Goliath shouting out, and he says, Who is this uncircumcised, this outsider, Outside the covenant people of God, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who terrifies the armies of the living God? That's the heartbeat that Jonathan has. Let's go over to these uncircumcised Philistines against all odds. Now we'll circle back. This verse 6 is critical. If you have your Bible, you can, on your phone, you can highlight it on your app, you can put in a little asterisk in your you have a printed Bible, we'll circle back to this, but for now, think about what, what Jonathan's saying. <laughs> if it hasn't already dawned on this armor bearer, Jonathan is proposing the two of them, just the two of them, attack 20 or more well-armed Philistine soldiers from a strategically inferior position. So Jonathan looks over waiting for a response from his armor bearer. And his armor bearer says, you're nuts! That does, that's not safe space, and I'm out. 
Is that what he says? No. I love what he says. Verse 7, And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. He pledges total support for whatever action lies ahead. Literally, literally, it says, I am with you like your heart is with you. Jonathan says, all right, it's on. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a little bit of, you know, uh, do you guys have whack-a-mole here? Like it's in Chuck E. Cheese, Chuck E. Cheese, yes, no? You know, the moles pop up and you go, Bram! you know, and they go, and you get to hit them. I love those things, you know. I should try to hit them sideways because I was one of those feral kids. Because if I hit it sideways, then it wouldn't go back down. Sorry. But anyway, don't do that, kids. So, but you know the little whack-a-mole things? So we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of whack-a-mole. We're going to, you, know, oh, you know, pop out and see if they see, you know. Jonathan says, all right, here's the plan, right? Uh, we'll show ourselves to these guys. If they, if they say, oh, wait, 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 hold on. We're, we're, we'll come to you, boys. Then we'll take that as a sign that we should probably head back to camp. But if they say, come on up, we'll take that as a sign that God's given us the victory. So the next moment, Jonathan moves into the middle of the ravine, his armor bearer beside him. He shouts up to the top of Bozes. Just then a Philistine soldier hears his voice sort of echoing through the ravine, hits another soldier on the arm and gestures towards the wadi. They get up and, and walk over to the edge. Their hearts are beating faster and faster as they ready themselves for a surprise attack. But when they peer down, their expressions of concern are changed into mocking smiles. Pfft, what a joke. It's only, you can hear one guy sort of reaches back, yells to the other guys, it's only two of them. Look at these clowns. To which the other Philistine soldiers begin to come forward towards the brim, looking down. What a bunch of rats. What a joke. Look at, the, look at these Hebrews. They're calling out of the holes. Pathetic. Losers. And one of the soldiers says, hey, why don't you come on up? And we'll teach you a thing or two. Come up, come up, come up, come up, come up. You can hear that echoing through the wadi. <laughs> then Jonathan hears that, looks at his armor bearer, grins and says, it's on. And up they go, verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. So you just, what a scene, Right? climb up on his hands and feet. Probably bits of rock are coming down. I imagine these guys, they're not just saying, come on up for a, a cuppa. These are rough Philistines. They're probably cursing at him. You stupid blankety blank, throwing rocks at him. I can't wait to get you up here. Oh, yeah. And right when they climb up to the top, did they allow them to catch their breath? Did they circle around them like a pack of laughing hyenas? If they did, that soon stops as Jonathan strikes the first blow. Boom! Drops one guy like that. Oh, what's going on? Drops another guy. Two, three, seven. Him and his armor bearer, it's, it's like things are now moving in slow motion. And they are just killing guys left, right, center. Boom, boom, boom. Nothing is impossible with the Lord, by many or by few. When it's all done, 20 dead Philistines lie on the 
God's earth, dust to dust. Jonathan drops to his knees and says, the Lord can save, nothing can hinder the Lord to save by many or by few. And at this point, we're wondering if they're now going to call the rest of the Philistine guys to come in and, and flank them. Remember, there's only two. But the ground begins to shake. There's an earthquake happening. Notice verse 13. Sorry, verse 14. At first strike, which Jonathan and his armor made, killed about 20 men within a half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp. In the field and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. It literally reads, and there existed a panic of God. That's how that actually literally reads. And there existed a panic of God. You see, the trembling was not caused by Jonathan's attack, but by the hand of God. The Lord is the subject of the panic. He is the one sending it. It's not, if God, it's, it's not as if God is panicking, right? Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What are they, these two dudes doing? No, no, no. The Lord is the one sending the panic. He's actively involved, just like he sent thunder and from heaven. Do you remember that? And Jonathan, what do we see here? Now as we contrast this, what is Jonathan doing? Hey, this guy is brave. He is out there serving the Lord, trusting the Lord, fighting the Lord's battle. Meanwhile, Saul is back in the camp trying to figure out what on earth the Lord would have him do. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went out at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hands. What a contrast, isn't it, between father and son? It, 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 Saul's very double-minded, isn't he? He's like, oh, what's going on? Okay, uh, get the ark out of here. Oh, wait, stop. Let's get back in the battle. I mean, he's a guy. He just doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, it's still early days for the monarchy, but who's, who's shining out here more, Jonathan or Saul? It's Jonathan. Isn't it interesting, too? Do you remember Saul's big fiasco in chapter 13, if you were here last week? And now we have, in chapter 15, that's next week, another fiasco, but sandwiched in the middle is Jonathan, outshining his dad. Jonathan is bold. His dad is brash, right? You know, this next scene in verse 23, um, we'll, we'll pick up there because that's the key. That's really the high point is that God saved Israel. In, that, in the next few verses, it almost annoys me just to even read it. It's like all the cowards join in the fight, you know? It's all the bandwagon people. Yay, we're winning. Get out of the holes. Come on. It's like, yeah, where were you guys, really? You know, so they, they all join in the fight when they realize they're going to win. But here's the key, verse 23. Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day 
The Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle pressed beyond Beth-Avon. God saved Israel as the direct result of a single individual's bold faith. Amazing. However, the story doesn't end there. There's some dark clouds hanging over this victory. Israel wins, no doubt, but, but we can't, they can't hardly celebrate. The writer explains why in verse 23. Notice, compare verse 23 and verse 24. Uh, so the Lord saved Israel on that day, verse 23. Verse 24, but the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. In this next section, he goes on to explain why Israel was hard-pressed. It's not because of the enemy, per se. It's not because of Jonathan. It's because of their king. Look at what Saul says in verse 24. Talk about throwing a wet blanket on the whole thing, right? And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. (sighs) Unbelievable. There's really no reason for for him to oppose this vow other than his own pride. Look carefully. Can you see his motivation for it? Until I am avenged on my enemies, me, myself, and I. That's what he thinks the kingdom is all about. He's concerned with his kingdom and his vengeance. Notice again, verse 25. So people, now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground, which is interesting. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. That's right. And people are starving, right? And, and the people entered the forest. Behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. So again, the people, verse 31 tells us here, are very faint. And in light of Saul's unnecessary requirement, look what they do. They have to actually, they break God's command in verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood, which the Torah, the, the Old Testament, God's commands clearly in Deuteronomy and Leviticus forbid this. I'll read uh, a bit here in Deuteronomy 12. The unclean and the clean you may eat as of the gazelle and as of the deer, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall not pour it out on the earth like water. So they are disregarding this because they are famished. But what does Saul do? <laughs> he doesn't even recognize his own culpability in this. Look at verse 33. It's, just, it's amazing. All, now Saul wants to get religious, by the way. He's like, okay, now it's time for me to get religious. I mean, he got religious before when he, he did what only the, the, the Levitical priest should do last week. That didn't go too well. So he wants to get religious again. And he goes, okay. All right, verse 33. Then he said, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. 
And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, dispense yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring an ox, sheep, and slaughter them, okay? See, you get what he's doing there? He doesn't even recognize his own culpability in this fiasco, nor does he realize that he has made the people prone to sin. So he says, I, I want to find out exactly who the culprit is. Who broke my oath? Who was it? Even if it's all my own flesh and blood, he must die. It's, just un it's unreal. Look at verse 38. Then Saul said, let us go down to the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. Is it sin? Or is that they've sinned against you? Because you've now made your own rules. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Again, this, 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 this vow is rash, excessive, it's unnecessary. And now, the death penalty is going to be imposed on the breaking of something that was never a sin to start with. This is, this is just hasty. You know what's interesting? I, I've, I've talked this, you know, I, I, I obviously, I fling a lot of mud on Saul, because that's my, I have a predisposition, you know, that's my presupposition about the guy. But when you think of this rash vow, and you think of a guy that wins battles, and um, think of the book of Judges, and, and you, you know, I'll, I'll offer to the Lord whatever comes out of the tent. What does that sound like? A bit like Jephthah, right? Remember the book of Judges? It's like the author here and Samuel is saying, Saul is just another dodgy judge with the title king. That's how he behaves. So they separate everyone out. They figure out who the bad guy is. They separate and finally gets to, you know, father and son. And then in verse 42, then Saul said, cast lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey of the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Now, Remember, remember the way, remember when Saul was first proclaimed king? Remember the, the, it says that those rebel rousers said, who says this guy? This guy can't save us. And, if, and then when Saul eventually did save them, you know, from, you know, he, remember he saved Jabesh Gilead? And then they said, who are those guys that were talking their trash? Those two guys, bring them here. We're going to put them to death. You remember that? And Saul said, no, 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 no. Not a man dies today. Well, it's interesting. He's willing to save those guys, but not his own son. And it's almost interesting. Those guys likely were doubting God's ability because it says that they were sons of Belial. Remember, that's a bad title. The guys that were saying, the guys that were talking trash against Saul. It's like, in a sense, they were doubting God's sovereign initiative and putting Saul forward because now that this, you know, this is the king you chose him, but God still anointed him king, 
in a, in a way, they're flinging mud at God. Well, Saul's okay with that. Just don't get, just don't offend him. <laughs> just don't offend Saul. It's just, it, it's, it's shocking because he says, all right, Jonathan, it's you. Here I am. I must die. And he says, yep, absolutely. You're dead. His actions are completely arbitrary. His guiding principle is himself. Jonathan has offended him, and therefore he, Jonathan, must die. To where the people have to step in. Verse 45. Follow along with me there. Verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. If a leader is not constrained by the word of God, if a leader, a pastor, or any leader is not constrained by the word of God, he will only be constrained by what he thinks he can get away with in the eyes of the people. If he's not going to be subject to the God of the universe, he's only going to be subject to his desire to maintain his power, his authority, his control. That's the only thing that keeps Jonathan alive here. Now, check out verse 47, because it, it does talk about sort of how Saul does his tours. And notice in verse 47, wherever he turned east, that's Moab and Amnon, southeast, that's Edom, Northeast, Zoba, or West, the Philistines, he succeeded. But don't miss the last part of that verse. Wherever he turned, you with me there? Wherever he turned, what does your Bible say there? He, someone help me, he routed them? He, sorry? He inflicted? Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, wherever he turned, he routed them, yeah? You know, the text literally says, wherever he turned, he did evil. <laughs> it's really interesting. See, although these narratives talk about some of the good things Saul does in that regard, it never says that he gave the land rest, does it? He fought against the enemy, but he didn't give the land rest. You have father and son, chalk and cheese. But I want to close off our time now by going back to what Jonathan said in verse 6 because I think there's some good theology for us to learn in what he says. Because there's, there's two things of what he says. If you come back to verse 6. He says, perhaps the Lord will help. Can you see that's the first part? Second part, nothing can hinder or keep him from doing so. We need to hold these two truths together. Jonathan understands that God is mighty to save, yet he does not presume, he does not presume upon God's sovereignty. See, what a massive declaration of faith that he says here in verse 6. Right? God can save by many or by few. Now, where did he get such faith? 
You know, where, 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 did he, where did that come from? Didn't come from his dad, right? He, he didn't get his faith from his circumstances. It's not as if everything was going the right way and, and he was simply going with the flow and, and was bound to be successful. He, he didn't get his faith because it was popular. As if everybody's believing in God and going to church. No, to the contrary. At this stage, everyone, what have they done? They've, they've deserted. They've gone into hiding. Even the king and his 600 men. Everybody had given up faith in God. So true faith can't be driven by circumstances or what's popular, what's going. It's trusting and knowing God. The Lord is not limited. Did you see his, the, the vocabulary he uses there? He's not limited. He's not, he's not restricted. He's not prevented in his ability to save. That's his premise. That's his premise. But he gets to his application of that. So let, let, me, let me camp here for just a minute. That's his premise. The Lord is not restricted. He's not prevented in his ability to save. But he also says, who knows, right? So I, I say that because we need to hear it. The Lord is not restricted in his ability to save. Who knows, dear friend, your non-Christian husband, your God-hating sister, your atheist father, your unregenerate wife, God is not hindered in saving them in the slightest. The Lord Almighty can save anybody. There could be a genuine revival that can happen here. And I don't mean that a bunch of people get bonked on the head and start rolling around like a bunch of apes. I mean a genuine spiritual renewing of hearts where people genuinely turn to Christ and you see it in the way that they, lay, they live and they lead their families. Nothing can hinder the Lord from doing that. I pray that that happens for this nation. I pray that God so chooses in His grace to save many souls for His glory. Perhaps the Lord may do that. Perhaps. Because we have to hold those two things together. Perhaps. You see what he says? Maybe. So the premise is God can do it. But the application is, well, if he wills, he'll do it. Oh, man, that guy would not be preaching on TBN, would he? That guy would not be preaching on all the prosperity junk that's out there because he doesn't have the faith. Oh, contraire. I mean, come on. Scaled the cliff, took on 20 dudes. That'd be faith. No, no, he has a right understanding of God. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What does James say? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll, we'll go to this or that city, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're like a, like a you just picture like an aerosol spray can. That's your life. You're like a vapor. Here for a minute, gone the next. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
when you say God willing, it's not a lack of faith. It's, it's not a sign that Jonathan is somehow doubting God's ability to save when he says perhaps. But it's a confession that God is not required to act for them. Does that, does that make sense? That's the application to it. His courage and faith in the Lord's ability to save, regardless of circumstances, but he lives in such a way to where he says, if the Lord wills, this will happen. The story of a sick young boy and the mother called upon the minister to pray for him. And as the mother and the minister were there praying, the minister said, Lord, if you will, please heal. And the mother cut him off and said, no ifs. Ironically, the boy went on to live, but broke his mother's heart as he was a rapist, a murderer, and was publicly executed. So sometimes, sometimes, dear friends, what we think makes sense, God says no. If the Lord decides to do this. There is a blasphemous idea that is swept across the globe of if you can just have enough faith, you can speak it into existence. That is not in the Bible. That is a complete slap in the face to God's sovereignty. I'll say it as clearly as I can. There's nothing orthodox about that. It's only been in the last 40 or 50 years that a bunch of heretics have made that idea, which is false, popular. Jonathan would look at them and say, what are you talking about? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If God wills, this will happen. The premise and the application. Some, it's a huge principle here from verse 6. Absolutely massive. I don't, I don't think Jonathan wavers in his faith whatsoever. I think we actually see him faithful to the very end. In fact, he will meet his dreadful day with his dad in battle again. And when he's there at Gilboa, fighting alongside his dad, he will die. And you almost picture, as he's there fighting, wondering if he's going to get out of this situation, perhaps the armor bearer was with him yet again. But he will meet his end, because he lives if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. And Jonathan goes home that day to the father. The father takes him home. Where now he'll live under the rule of a true king, the king of kings. Dear friend, if the Lord wills, you're going to walk out of this place alive today. If the Lord wills, you're going to wake up tomorrow. We don't know. Are you right with God? Do you know King Jesus? Have you turned to him in repentance? 
You have nothing to offer him. You have nothing to give to him. You have no clean track record of which you can point to. You've offended God left, right, and center. And it's only by grace and grace alone can you be saved. You need to turn to Jesus today. Now. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be your king today. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would grant faith to those that do not have saving faith. Lord, for the rest of us, we pray that you would remind us of these truths, that you can save rather by many or by few. Help us, Lord, to also hold intention that you may just or may just not help us to hold that perhaps with faith simultaneously. Please do a good work in your people this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, dear friends, if you're here,